Hi, this is Annie Fox for Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. My guest today is Rick Phillips. Rick is the executive director and founder of Community Matters. He is also the lead author of Safe School Ambassadors, Harnessing Student Power to Stop Bullying and Violence. Hi, Rick. Welcome to Family Confidential. Hi, Annie. Good to be with you today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, I want to get right into this because talking about school bullying is has been one of my unfortunate passions <laughs> for too long. I've, I'm, I'm really getting very um, frustrated and I wanted to talk to you because I know you have a program that seems to be very effective in your school ambassadors program and the work that you've been doing for the last 15 years. So let's get right to it. I want to ask you this question. How do you think bullying has changed over the years? Um, yeah. How has it changed? I think that's such an important starting point, Annie, because when many of us were children, we think about bullying as being physical intimidation, you know, right. a couple of bigger, older thug boys threatening somebody for their lunch money. Right. Uh, unfortunately, over the years, bullying has mutated, morphed like a virus. And today, a bully could be a 10-year-old girl simply pressing a button on her cell phone, sending a compromising photograph, a mean-spirited message, or a text that tells somebody they're unwelcome and not not loved at school or not wanted at school. So the whole the whole dynamic of bullying has significantly alt- been altered and yet our responses as a nation as schools as parents as citizens hasn't caught up with that yet. Well that's so interesting. Now, um, first of all when you said uh, a message that would make another child feel unwelcome, I felt a little tear in my eye. That makes me feel very very sad that any child would um intentionally try to shake someone up so that they felt unwelcome. I know that 160,000 American kids every single day choose not to go to school because they're afraid of that, that kind of response, that you're not welcome here. So why do you think this change has happened? Why has the virus morphed? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. It's not simple, but I think some of the major things is Modeling by adults and media focus. What I mean by modeling by adults, I think increasingly adults in our culture have become bystanders rather than upstanders and not speaking up, not getting involved. You know, there's a fear, a reluctance on the part of most grownups to say or do something when they see intolerance or meanness in their midst. Often it's fear of retaliation, fear of litigation, fear of being threatened by somebody else. So I think when children witness adults being passive bystanders, they too become passive bystanders. Secondarily, a lot of our media, a lot of the music, the TV programs, the YouTube videos kind of promote meanness as humor, creating somewhat of a desensitization to the pain and suffering of other people. We hear messages in young people's music, you know, snitches get stitches, don't tell, don't get involved, it's not your business. So we have a culture that is promoting indifference, and I think that indifference is also fueling the belief that meanness is becoming more normal in our culture and therefore more acceptable. I would totally agree. It's really upside down on its head when we we think that um, it's cool to be mean or cruel or in any way um, have 
have the goal in your life is to bring somebody else down. You say that schools seem to be stuck in old approaches to um, to dealing with with uh, peer harassment and intimidation in on a campus. Um, how have they been doing it typically? Well, if we use the marker in time of Columbine, which was 15 years ago. Already? As the big- wow. <laughs> yes. And, and that marker was important because it set in motion uh, the passage of the Safe and Drug-Free Schools Act, which for more than 10 years provided billions of dollars to public schools to address the scourge of bullying and cyberbullying. Unfortunately, Annie... Uh, so much of the money was expended on security, believing that security was safety. More cameras, higher fences, locked doors, metal detectors, more guards. And what we know is you can lock the problem outside of the school, but children bring weapons into the school that get past metal detectors, the weapons of uh, stereotypes, assumptions, uh, grudges from their neighborhood, values from home that get played out every day. So the, the, the summary comment here is we have done a good job of securing the perimeter. We've not done enough to change the relationships between the people in the building. That is where we need to focus more of our attention today. Well, that's so well said. Yeah, as if the enemy is always without when, in fact, the enemy is often within. And and I, I'm really um, very appreciative of what you say about the attitudes that kids bring with them to school with their backpacks and, and everything else that, that may make it okay for them in, the, in their code of ethics to um, target other kids who are different or more vulnerable in some way. Um, and we don't have offer them enough, um, um, enough ways to process that kind of wrong thinking, nor do we um, make it much of a priority to deal with um, peer-to-peer conflict and, and peaceful resolution in school. We're always teaching to the test, right? Over the years, we've moved away from social-emotional learning. We've focused so much, as you've said, on teaching to test and getting ready for tests that we've lost instructional minutes that are equally important to grow healthy children. We don't need to just fill their heads with information. We need to fill their hearts with compassion and with tools for resolving differences peacefully and for managing impulses and for getting along with people that are different than you. These are equally important skills, and that's where the push is now to really transform our schools to be more than just institutions of learning, but really communities of compassion and communities of caring. So when when you have your ambassador's program go out, what kind of, uh, first I'd like you to tell us exactly what it is, but what kind of receptivity do you get on the part of uh, a typical public school? Well, I, I'd say it this way, Annie. I, I think at this point, most schools understand that we'll, we'll never be successful in getting better results by trying to lock the problem out. We'll never be successful if we try to legislate the problem away, nor will we be successful if we punish kids thinking we can turn them into better people by punishment. So now that we know what doesn't work, schools are more receptive to looking at programs that deal with changing the social norms and the dynamics inside the building. I saw that as an opportunity years ago, thinking that the best way to address bullying was to, in my words, wake up the courage of young people and in waking up their courage, give them the opportunities and the tools so that they could prevent, interrupt, de-escalate or stop meanness when they see it. Because here's what we know. 
young people can intervene in ways that adults can't. Students are on the front lines of this epidemic and have the opportunity to intervene sooner than adults. But often, as the media culture and the modeling of adults, as I said earlier, has not inspired kids. So our idea with the Safe School Ambassadors program was, what if we began to target and identify the alpha social leaders from different cliques, believing that it was these young people who had higher social capital in their diverse social circles, that they would be in the best position to safely and effectively say or do something, and their friends or peers would listen. So our program really recruits diverse social leaders from different cliques, trains them, trains them in simulations and role plays where they get to practice what they could safely do to intervene when they see a friend call somebody a name, when they see somebody get mad and threaten to hurt somebody or press a button and cyber bully somebody, and give them more tools so they gain the confidence and the competence to safely intervene. That's the premise of the Safe School Ambassador Program. Wake up the courage of alpha kids. Let each one teach one, each one reach one. And as they begin to model the courage to intervene, other kids will follow them and we can change the social norms in each of our school buildings. Now, I want to play devil's advocate for a minute here, Rick. Um, A lot of these um, social alpha kids um, are already very bold and courageous. And um, I'm thinking some of them may have already been gold medal harassers themselves. No doubt. That's a perceptive comment. Often we are, if, if our goal is to recruit in a school, let's say of a thousand middle school students, 40 of the most diverse alpha leaders, you can be sure that some of those young people will be perpetrators, kids who have done harm in the past. Right. What's What we've learned in 15 years is that many of the young people who are being mean-spirited, often think of it as teasing or kidding and aren't really malicious people. And when they get trained and realize the impact of their comments, the impact of their actions, they begin to course correct and actually become better people because now they understand the implications of what they've done, the longer-term negative consequences, and are now being given an opportunity to be an upstander and a change agent. And that inspires many of these kids to change their behavior. Wow. How long does the training take place? How long does it um, take? And, and what kind of buy-in do you get from parents? When we get to a school, whether it's elementary, middle, or high, we spend two full days. So we ask the school to make the commitment to pull 40 kids out of class, give us a handful of teachers or adults to support those young people, and give us a room where we can spend two days creating a safe environment where rich dialogue occurs between diverse kids, and we begin to name the problem. We begin to give the kids some information. They become more inspired because they feel empowered. And then we spend a lot of time practicing in small groups, role plays and simulations of what you can safely say or do. For instance, Annie, this is important. One example of what this might look like is a eighth grade boy is walking down the hall of his middle school and he sees a girl in front of him during passing period and she's got an unzipped backpack. So imagine she trips and as she trips, some of the things in her backpack tumble out onto the floor. She goes to the floor like any one of us would do to retrieve her, retrieve her materials. Some kids 
stand around here and think this is a humorous opportunity. And a couple of the boys not only laugh at her and girls that are wrapped around her, a couple of them kick her materials further away. So she's in a compromising position. She's fearful. One of our ambassadors sees this, and instead of being passive, he goes into that experience. And rather than confronting the kids who are being aggressive, he just gets down on his knees and just looks at the girl and says, can I help you pick up your stuff? As he picks up her stuff with her, he reports, not only do the perpetrators, some of them peel off and leave, but the two boys who did the kicking of her stuff away, they modeled what he did, got down on their knees and helped her pick up her stuff. If you... If you just freeze frame that one moment, what in a sense we have is the formula for world transformation is if more and more young people begin to raise their voice and say raise their voices and say and do the right thing when they see injustice or intolerance and other kids witness that, that will over time, not overnight, become the change process that can lead us to a social tipping point where this virus can at least be reduced and ultimately disappear. I feel so inspired listening to you. I want to go to that school. I want to see the training. <laughs> this is this is good because I have to tell you for so many years I've been on the receiving end of email from from the girl who had who tripped, who was yes. who was pushed, who who was then laughed at as she tried to retrieve her stuff and felt very unsafe. And um it's not often that I hear from people like you who are who are making a difference in in helping kids recognize that they have tremendous power and influence among their peers that can be used in a very positive way. Well said. One, one little thing that's very important here is part of the reason I think the Safe School Ambassador Program and Community Matters has been successful is that we have data corroborating that this theory actually works. People ask us, as they should, they should kick the tires and say, how do you know it really works? What difference does it really make to have 40 kids on a campus who are looking for trouble and being willing to intervene when they see it? What we're able to do is collect information from the students by using smartphone apps. We put an app on a smartphone of one of our trained ambassadors, and he or she, anytime she she or he intervenes, they can quickly just report what they did, how effective it was, what part of the campus the uh, problem occurred in. And we collect all that data. And over the years, what we've determined is students are intervening on the average of uh, at least two to three times a week. So just do some simple math with me, Annie, for a moment. If we've got 40 kids to start with in the first year, and those young people two or three times a week say or do something to make the world a slightly better place, over the course of a school year, that's over 3,000 times that students are actively interrupting, preventing, de-escalating, or stopping trouble, and it's witnessed by so many people. Downstream, what the school reports, those actions lead to reductions in discipline referrals, reductions in fights, and ultimately reductions in suspensions and behavioral expulsions. All of that makes the school a safer, healthier place, not only for the students, but you get the staff and the administration feeling better about their jobs because they're working in a community of compassion and caring. We can fix this problem, but we've got to, as adults, have the courage to believe that young people are being underutilized, and our program is but one way in which we can inspire young people to take action. It sounds amazing, and I'm so happy to hear that you've got the data 
to to back up the fact that this isn't just another good idea that it actually works. So, so tell me, Rick, we have um, time for just one more question. It has to do with parents because actually um, this Family Confidential podcast is supposed to be giving secrets of successful parenting. We've talked a lot about schools and the role of um, of, of teachers and, and mentors like yourself in training kids to use their social influence. How can parents do the same in the microcosm of their family? One of the things we've learned, Annie, over the years that oftentimes young people who are victimized by others or bullied or cyber bullied or harassed internalize it and don't tell their parents. So one of the things that we educate parents to do is to be better at asking uh, open-ended questions and creating a dialogue with their own children that will give kids more permission to share something that might be embarrassing or their worry is that their parents will come in and make things worse. So one of the things we want to educate parents, parents is to do more than just ask our children when they come home from school, hi, honey, how was your day? But to engage in a dialogue that might elicit a little more texture and a little more information, because often it's the second or third question that will crack the veneer and allow a child to say, well, you know, mom or dad, I did have a problem at school today. And then we can intervene with support sooner than later and not find our kids, you know, numbing themselves with alcohol or other drugs or staying home, as you suggested, or ultimately and tragically sometimes taking their own lives. So parents should not assume just because their kid says the day was good that it really was. (laughs) We need to do more. We need to do more. And, and when, and, and as you say, the second part of that is that when students feel safe enough to, to let down their guard and talk to their parents honestly about what had happened, um, the parents work with the student and the school to get to the bottom of it without, you know, rushing in. And, and as you say, the potential of making it worse is, is very real. Parents are there to help. Well said. Good. Wow, this was great. Okay, I should talk to you every time I feel a little bit discouraged about this virus of bullying. You, you've really lifted my spirits. Before we go, can, can you please let our viewers and listeners know where they can find out more about your work? Certainly. We would welcome anyone to certainly view our website at www.community-matters.org. That's community-matters.org. We have videos and uh, supports for parents and resources and lots of things that might be useful to any adult, any parent, any educator who wants to see this bullying virus uh, reduced or go away completely. That's great. Thanks so much for your work and for your time today, Rick. Um, I, I feel honored to talk to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have a platform like yours in which to speak about this Uh, this significant issue. I hope we can do it again. Thank you. Me too. Bye. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential. To learn more about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And please check out my parenting book, Teaching Kids to Be Good People, Progressive Parenting for the 21st Century. And have a look at my new book for tween girls, the girls' Q&A book on friendship, 50 Ways to Fix a Friendship Without the Drama. And if you enjoy this podcast, and we certainly hope you do, we welcome your review on iTunes. It may seem like a little thing to you, but it means a lot to us. And tune in next week when my guest will be Linda Gordon. Linda Gordon is a licensed social worker and the co-author of Too Close for Comfort, Questioning the Intimacy of Today's New Mother-Daughter Relationship. 
Family Confidential Podcast is produced by Electric Eggplant, creators of books and apps for parents, kids, tweens, and teens. Until next time, happy parenting. Happy parenting.